Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and has ever wondered about them. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and its sequels, and the Top Secret Diary of Celie Valentine series. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related question. And in this episode, we consider the challenges of historical and speculative fiction writing when it comes to race. Perhaps more than any other interview, this one gave rise to long conversations between the two of us, right? Very long. Very many and very long. In a good way. Yes. What Bethany has to say is really thought-provoking, and I'm so glad that she came on the podcast. And I really hope that this episode leads to a lot of constructive reflection and conversation, both for us in an ongoing way and for our listeners. I do too. So let's get right to it because there's so much to talk about. Bethany C. Morrow is an indie bestselling author who writes for adult and young adult audiences in genres ranging from speculative literary to contemporary fantasy to historical. She's the author of the novels Mem and A Song Below Water. A Song Below Water is her recent book that just came out. It's a YA book. And she's also the editor contributor to the young adult anthology Take the Mic, which was a 2020 ILA Social Justice and Literature Award winner. Her work has been chosen as Indies Introduce and Indies Next Picks and featured in the LA Times, Forbes, Bustle, BuzzFeed, and more. She's included on USA Today's list of 100 Black novelists and fiction writers you should read. We started by asking Bethany about the new book that she's been working on, which is a remix of Little Women. Here's what she said. So it's not a retelling because it's not possible to do a retelling set in the same time period in the same country with a Black family. There's no such thing as genteel poverty and conversations about transcendentalism and, you know, just the widely applied term abolitionist with zero evidence of that. Mm -hmm. So it is a remix And I talked to Gwenda Bond about this. She writes the Lois Lane novels. Uh, We were on a panel together and she was saying something about the identifying factors that you have to have for somebody to know that this is based on something else or this is a send up to something. Mm -hmm. And I agreed. I was like, okay, so there's very few things that I would have to have for people to understand that this is Little Women. And it basically boils down to the four sisters and Lori. Now, of course, are there other little send-ups in the book? Of course there are. But in terms of plot and characterization, none of that, you know, I I basically didn't spend any time with Little Women. Um, Mm -hmm. I grew up watching the adaptation, of course, with Winona Ryder that we all loved, I assume. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to say that. Um, (laughs) And... When I first was asked to do this, because I was approached by the editor, Emily Settle, to do a retelling or a remix of this particular one. And I I think I probably immediately told her, like, it would bear no semblance other than the sisters and their love for each other and that being their motivation. And then some version of the character of Lori, who I personally have never liked. So um, he certainly wasn't going to be the original Lori. And I set mine in 1863. I set at it on Roanoke Island at the Freed People Colony. It's during the Civil War. It's before um, 
that's before obviously all slavery is over. So you're in this very strange period where there are people who are enslaved in this state and there are people who are not enslaved. And it basically just depends on where the union has won. And it deals a lot with what it would mean to live in the shadow of the union. And, you know, basically something that I always, that tires me endlessly are these books from white perspectives having to do with supposedly this very strict dichotomy of union and confederate and there doesn't need to be any evidence we've sort of mythologized these things to the point that if you say union you mean the good guys sure and i don't mean to imply that the confederates aren't the bad guys i just mean (laughs) there's no proof that the union are the good guys especially in lived experience for people who were forcibly dependent on them Mm -hmm. so it deals with the colonies these freed people colonies that we as far as i know most people my age were not taught this history. I've been saying this on Twitter a lot. We're talking about all of the different times that Black Americans recently have had to Trojan horse actual American history into speculative work mm-hmm. for the purpose of re-educating people who've been fed propaganda their entire lives. So you had the first episode of Watchmen and suddenly people are like, is the Tulsa massacre real? What are you talking about? Yeah. Of course it's real. Yeah. Like how, mm-hmm. do, how would you not have known this? And then you have um, Lovecraft country come on and people are like, are sundown towns real? And I'm like, you know what? Too many of you were involved <laughs> in this for you all to be acting like nobody knows this. It's a little much, it's like a slap in the face. We have to use a fantastical to tell the truth because so many deterrents to proper acknowledgement have been set up in our culture. Yeah. My little women is the equivalent of that. I'm going to talk to you about the actual history of freed people colonies, of the behavior of the union, of what it would mean to be a quote-unquote emancipated and be trying to travel around the the United States, that sort of thing. Is your Little Women speculative or is it historical fiction? No, it is not. It is historical fiction. There is no speculative aspect to it, but it's I don't think that people who are accustomed to my work are going to feel like it's very different because of the level of ignorance that there is around the history in the book. Right. (laughs) Um, It'll feel speculative. Right. It's going to feel very speculative. For some people. For some. Obviously not for those of us who, you know, we have a whole different curriculum that goes alongside our curriculum. I don't want to make connections that I shouldn't make, but what I'm wondering, listening to what you're saying talking about how speculative fiction has been a place for Black people to write these kinds of stories that depict true history that we're not getting in other places and that it has to sort of come in through the speculative door. Mm -hmm. And I think we see that a lot with queer speculative fiction as well. So the connection I'm not sure if I should be making is, is there something positive to be inferring from the fact that this next story you're writing isn't speculative, that you're just straight up coming through the history door? or the historical fiction door? No, because I'm not just coming through the historical fiction door. I'm coming through a beloved property. Mm. I'm coming through, I'm coming through an established, well-loved property. So it is absolutely, to me, the exact same level of clandestine storytelling. I have an author's note at the end that talks about, well, exactly what you see with people resisting the 1619 project. We are not about history. We are about myth and memory. 
And when I say we, I'm very generously including myself in something I have no power over. So I just mean as a country, as a nation, the United States is very, very much about mythology and about memory. And therefore, historical fiction is very often not historical to begin with. And if you put too much history in historical fiction, because the reader is so unaccustomed to, to historicity, it'll be like, oh, this doesn't seem right. You've heard of the Tiffany Dilemma. No, I haven't heard of the Tiffany Dilemma. So if you write a book set in, let's say, Great Britain or in Western Europe in, you know, medieval times or something, and you name a character Tiffany, the reader will be like, I'm calling BS. This is ridiculous. Of course, her name's not Tiffany. Tiffany is a modern name. How does the author not know this? The problem is that Tiffany was a very common name. Oh, really? <laughs> right. So <laughs> it was, yes, they're literally Tiffany. It was very common. So the problem is that the reader will deny the thing in your work that is accurate because it doesn't fit their imagined history. So the books that are already out are both speculative fiction, um, but one, Mem, is historical speculative fiction. What is it about historical speculative fiction that you were drawn to for your first book? Um, I don't think that I was, I, I, I love to do this to people because I think that people have this idea that writers, uh, or at least that all of us, set out to do something. Mm. So I'm here to disabuse you of that notion <laughs> with my work. I get concept first and typically character bleeds out of concept, I think is the appropriate way for it to work with me. So I knew that it was about memory extraction for the purpose of not having to deal with unwanted memories. And I knew that it would create a mem and that the mem is meant to be just a keepsake box in which the memory is housed. And then of course, that the main character is an example, the first example of a mem who for whatever reason, can create her own memories, can interact with the world, is aware of herself, is aware of the world. Um, and so the first time I knew that it was set in the 20s was just because of how she was dressed in my mind. She was wearing a cloche hat. So I was like, oh, maybe this is set in the 20s. Once I started doing historical research into 1920s Montreal, every new thing that happened was tantamount to science fiction. There was nothing about placing this technology in this time period that felt out of place, particularly thinking of it from the perspective of someone actually living in that time period where you're seeing people fly for the first time and you're seeing cars without horses for the first mm -hmm. time. And all of these buildings are going up that are taller than any that have ever been in the city. And, and then every time there was an accident, I guess that was sort of the other side of it that was so troubling and fascinating. Every single time you had the first instance of one of these things backfiring or simply just the potential outcomes that you couldn't have foreseen because this thing didn't exist before. Mm. So you had no way of knowing how destructive this thing could be. It just absolutely fit with that period. And then also, as I talk about frequently, there was the 1920s persons case in Canada where um, women were not considered persons by law in terms of the ability to own things, the ability to basically contest anything with the men in your life to have belongings, that sort of thing. So this was a real 
this is a real thing that was happening. And I think a lot of times that in itself will seem speculative to people like, what are you talking about in the 1920s? Women weren't people. Yeah. So I so, so that hat in your imagination <laughs> led right. you to the perfect time and place. That's oh, really extraordinary. And I think the thing about historical fiction, because we're so unfamiliar, like I said, with most history, you could almost probably choose any time period. Yeah. Just because we all know about six things per decade. <laughs> You know. Well, I was just thinking, as you said, all of the changes that were happening then, that you could say the same thing, right, about now. There was the internet and there was all of these new technologies. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think of the number of people I met from online within the first couple of years that you're like, wow, that could have gone so bad, <laughs> you know, because I was like 14 or 15 years old and nobody, the things you don't know how to protect your family against because you've never seen these things before. Right. The difference in the 20s is that these were all sort of explosive things. <laughs> <laughs> so these were fatal, you know, on contact. I, in the book, there's the first fatality in Montreal as a result of a car accident. At Gare Windsor, there's the train coming from Boston that broke through the concourse and through the women's salon and all of the people who died that day. And so it was like all of these things that were making this great cosmopolitan new world that people didn't seem prepared for the fact that they were literally in the perfect or I guess wrong circumstances are literally fatal, like instantly. Mm -hmm. And there's, and there's no, you know, because there's no street signs and there were no seat belts. We think of these things as being super normal, but they're all the result of trauma. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What Bethany says about unforeseen consequences reminds me so much of what Margaret Atwood says about the unintended consequences of technology. It's so great. She says that with all technology, there's a good side, a bad side, and a stupid side that you weren't expecting. So she gives an example, and this is from a, an article in The New Yorker. She says, look at an axe. You can cut a tree down with it and you can murder your neighbor with it. And the stupid side you hadn't considered is that you can accidentally cut off your foot with it. <laughs> so true. So true. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a lot of what Bethany says reminds me of the limitations of our imagination, just as you know, we don't imagine that we can cut off our foot with the axe. I remember being back in the days when we could travel, you know, in the Prado in Madrid, and there were paintings of Jerusalem, and it was painters who'd never seen any images of Jerusalem. And so they were left solely imagining it. And when you look at the paintings now, you can see how tethered we are to our actual surroundings. They look much more like their home countries than they do like the actual Jerusalem. Even when we assume we're being creative, in fact, we're quite tied to what we know, whether what we know is accurate or not. You know, The Tiffany problem was really illuminating. But I'd like to go back to the discussion we had with Bethany about her remix of Little Women. I mean, writers do this all the time, right? West Side Story, Romeo and Juliet, Clueless, Emma. But as a Black writer, there are consequences for her that white writers don't have to face. So you and I wanted to learn more about this book that she's working on, which is called So Many Beginnings. And we looked it up on Goodreads. It's not coming out until September of this year, but there's already an entry for it. And so remember, she hasn't even finished writing it. Nobody's read it yet. And there are seven reviews already. And five are along the lines of, you know, yay, I'm so excited, can't wait. And then the other two are breathtakingly racist. Mm-hmm. 
And it actually looks like the reviewers of those two use their actual names. So zero shame at racism. We don't want to amplify their voices, but just to say that both of those reviews were along the lines of how dare you touch this highly valued piece of white intellectual property? You know, it isn't yours, stay in your lane kind of thing. Yeah. It was so appalling and upsetting. Yeah. And just a very telling example of the kinds of things that she talked about in our conversation. Yeah. Uh, Well, we asked her next about her influence as a writer. And here, too, race is an important factor. Let's listen. I wonder, um, on a different topic, uh, are there particular books that have influenced you more than others as a writer? I would say the more important question for me as a Black American author is where I saw and where I connected with seeing myself in fiction. I've read all the same stuff that everybody else has read because I was educated in the United States and I was a voracious reader. And of course I've read uh, Little Women and of course I've read Anne of Green Gables and all that kind of stuff. Would I say those things influenced me? Of course not. I wasn't anywhere in them. It required me to believe a bunch of stuff that was actually quite contradictory to what I did know. (laughs) There's more to be said about when I found authors like Toni Morrison, who did something that people kept trying to impress upon me, couldn't possibly be my native tongue. Like that was the biggest thing about finding Toni Morrison is that because of what I read and because of the fact that my sister Jennifer and I would just memorize a Shakespeare because that's just what you do. And then you just perform it in front of your parents and vaudevillian sort of shows that you set up. Just so you know, my sister Jennifer and I never did that. <gasps> yeah. <laughs> sister Jennifer. Okay, so that I refuse. I do have to a sister believe. Jennifer, but we never memorized Shakespeare. Together. I refuse to believe that because I can't understand having a sister Jennifer and not, <laughs> and her not being Benedict and you being Beatrice. Um, yeah, so I had a very, and I journaled a lot. So I had a very established interior voice and it was the one that I was comfortable with. And it was, it was the one that came naturally to me. But a lot of times, the first time I would have a teacher, the first notes I would get would be, you need to write these things yourself and your parents shouldn't be helping you and you shouldn't be plagiarizing, blah, blah. And I, for a minute, I did not understand what was happening. And then I noticed that my father used to go ahead of me to classes. We changed schools quite a bit. We went to private Christian schools uh, when I was in elementary school. And um, he would go and tell people, she's going to be your brightest student. She's going to be your smartest student. I had no idea why he would bother saying these things because in my mind, I'm like, well, they're going to see that, right? Why would Mm -hmm. you have to tell them that? And then I had a son and he was in a primarily white you know, village going to American school for the first time. And I found myself in one of his teacher's classes where they were telling me how difficult something was going to be. And I found myself informing her, he's going to be your smartest student. He is going to be your most engaged Mm -hmm. student. And as I walked out of the class, I was like, oh, this is what black parents have to do. I have to go in front of my son because you're going to see my son and you're going to decide a lot of stuff. Um, and so what my teachers, a couple of my teachers had been doing was assuming that I was not the one writing these things because it just didn't make sense with the way that I looked and the way that I spoke with my friends. And so she clearly didn't write these things. Hmm. Basically when I read Toni Morrison for the first time, I was like, well, there it is Mm -hmm. there. There's that voice. Mm -hmm. So if it's native to her, 
that it's that it can be native to me. So why have I been trying to either convince you that this is really the way that I speak or adjust it so that I don't keep having to answer these questions when this person is writing the most beautiful work that you don't even seem to understand in exactly the voice I hear in my head. So I would say it was literally just a matter of seeing your reflection and realizing that you're real. Yeah. This reminds me, a few years ago, you wrote in an article for Medium, I imagine myself hearing complete stories from the very beginning, seeing fully realized Black characters all my life as a natural and constant part of the landscape. I imagine having been placed at the center of a science fiction universe where adventure was inescapable. I don't think it would have made a difference. I know it. Mm -hmm. Were you thinking about this when you decided to write A Song Below Water? And also, have you heard from readers yet? And what have you heard from them? Oh, yes. And that has been, of course, magic. And I appreciate hearing from everyone. The book is for everyone, but the book is to Black American girls. So when I hear from them, it it, it impacts me very differently. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's the same as when people ask me, what was I thinking of when I wrote Mem? And the double bind of being a woman and also being a black woman and how did I balance? And the answer of course is I don't have to do those things. The question is coming from the questioner's perspective. Mm. But for me, I am always these things. This is my entire existence and experience. And therefore I don't balance that. I am that I am the balance of that. Mm -hmm. I don't have to think about it that intentionally. I am aware of the impact. I know that this is important. If it weren't important, one group of people wouldn't be intentionally dominating representation. It's the same reason I don't answer questions about why is it important for Black people to see themselves? Why would I answer that question? That's that's absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. They're like, tell me why you deserve to exist. Um, that's ridiculous. Yeah. I have another Well, it's not a craft question, but it's a question specific to A Song Below Water. So often in speculative fiction, supernaturalism is used kind of as an extended metaphor. So the magic is a stand-in for the real world thing you're actually talking about. And in, in A Song Below Water, and one of the characters actually even kind of says this, the supernatural is more like an added layer. Mm -hmm. Mostly it's a world that feels very recognizable, except for the addition of these characters who are from mythology and are real. Right. So the book has the same races and racism, same genders, sexism, and the same inequities that our world does today. But plus, there are the politics of being supernatural. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, can you tell us a little bit about how you think about that extra layer? I mean, is it is that layer a mirror? Is it a magnifier? Is it something totally different? Yeah, that layer is a magnifying glass. There's something that science fiction and fantasy loves to do, which is allegorical bigotry. Allegorical bigotry erases and ignores real world inequity to assign that inequity to a fictional race or something, supposedly for the purpose of teaching us empathy. It also routinely becomes a way to assign oppressor characteristics and motives to real world oppressed people. What you see is a lot of times, oh, the person who's really in harm's way is coded white. Yeah. Allegorical bigotry is a way to take ownership of victimhood 
and also to reassign real world marginalized people to the position of oppressor. You can't erase actual bigotry to talk about bigotry. Mm-hmm. Again, science fiction and, and fantasy have often been used by Black Americans specifically because it elevates a truth that people pretend they can't see, as we talked about before with Watchmen and Lovecraft Country. But it also alleviates for both the Black writer and a lot of times the reader from the weight of the fact that we know this is true. I already know this is happening. I already know this is true. I live this. There is so much here to think about and talk about. I'm still exploring many of the points that Bethany made, and I know you are too. I hope our listeners find it as thought-provoking as we did. Well, of course they will. Of course they will. Yeah. I'm also really grateful to Bethany for sharing so candidly with us. Yeah. I think that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. You can find Bethany at bethanymorrow.com or on Twitter at bcmorrow. Many thanks to our associate producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eviohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julian.